This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener, we're so glad that you can join us today, either here locally or through the Internet at wagp.net. We broadcast 24-7 around the world because of the generosity of many of our listeners who have given to share in the past. And we're grateful, just want to say it, for those who gave to this past share and we were able to meet our goal. Now, for the next hour, we will be taking questions. Maybe there's a text of Scripture you're studying or a particular issue that you're facing in your life and you want biblical counsel on. If we can be of help this morning, there's several ways that you can contact us locally. The 843 exchange is 525-1859. The toll-free number is the 877 exchange, and it's just the call letters, WAGP 980, 877-WAGP 980, or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL, that stands for The Bible Line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you call, we do give preference to live callers. But if you don't want to go on the air live and you simply want to dictate your question, many do, we're happy to receive it that way as well. Well, Rick, uh, let's get started. Um, Go ahead and Let's jump in with both feet, by God's grace. Well, Pastor, you did mention going around the world uh, via the Internet, and uh, we have gotten a question from Australia. Gabby writes, Hello, Dr. Brogy. I'm about to complete my degree in childhood education and recently undertook a placement at a public primary school. During this time, a young girl requested that she be referred to as a boy, and the consensus from the school was that we had to obey the student's wishes. I understand where the school was coming from, but I have concerns about my future as a teacher. I don't want to participate in the sexual confusion of young, impressionable children. I also have concerns about teaching history and science. There are many public and Catholic schools where I live, but not many Reformed Christian schools. Do you think it's okay to teach in a Catholic school despite disagreeing with some of their beliefs? Thank you. Well, Gabby, there's a lot there in your question and in your statement because what you're facing concerning now this new transgender generation is multiplying and growing. And, of course, uh, I think it was just a week or so ago I sent something out on Twitter in reference to an event that's taking place in Australia, a young couple who have been faithfully foster parents, loving Christian born-again people, uh, but there were some, you know, restrictions in terms of what they're what they're expected to do uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you you bring in a child and the child wants to have their sex changed and you're supposed to cooperate with that. And these uh, foster parents are, you know, deemed unfit. And and so Australia is very radical. It's uh, godless, much like our own nation is. And so these are challenging days, and honestly, if um, 
the Democratic platform is initiated. And this is why the vote in Georgia is so important. All of you in Savannah, if you're a born-again Christian, I hope you will vote biblically and you will vote for the Republicans because the two Democrats who are running are anything but biblical. And if they win, then the Democrats will control the Senate, the House, and the presidency. And if that happens, then some of these restrictions that they are finding in Australia, we're going to find here. So let me talk for a moment about transgenderism because, again, there are people like this student that you have uh, counseled who identify as the opposite of their biological sex. And so they, you know, want certain names, pronouns. You know, he wants to be called she and Paul wants to be called Patty and on and on it goes. And so a well-meaning Christian needs to ask, do I use the preferred pronoun just to be polite? Or should I, as a Christian, you know, make a point about not using those terms at all because uh, then I'm giving endorsement to the lifestyle? Well, you need to be respectful of anyone because we're all made in the image of God. The scripture says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So anyone created in the image of God, and that's all humans, need to be treated with respect. But then he said male and female, he created them. So there's no uh, third sex, and you can't change your sex. I mean, if we spoke about this 20 years ago, hey, you know, um, I'm, I'm a boy, but I, I think I'm becoming a girl. People would think you were you know, mentally sick, or they would think it was almost comical. But what is happening in our nation is God is giving us over to a reprobate mind, an upside-down mind. And so preferred pronouns in my judgment as a believer, are not options. Uh, you don't use them. Uh, you use the pronoun of the person's biological birth as God created them. And this is important. And, and add to that, you've got people who say they are a combination of gender. I'm not male. I'm not female. I'm both. And it, it just really gets confusing. And remember, these people who have adopted some of these things. And, and, and look, I don't buy into these, you know, our potentially our new president. I mean, it's just going to be difficult for me to uh, respect him. I'll respect the office. I can't respect him and his whole line of thinking about it's okay for an eight-year-old to, you know, transition. And th- this is just parental child abuse. And God hates these kinds of things. And it's uh, when when you agree to these things, it would be like um, it would be like saying other faiths are all legitimate. When Jesus said, "I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me," it'd be like saying other gods are permissible. When the Bible warns us we're to test the spirits, and and it would be when you call you know Patty Paul or he she then you are doing what Isaiah said in Isaiah 5, what are you who call good evil and evil good? And God is, you know, really displeased with this. So we're in for some challenges. And again, if the Dems rule in page 41 of the Democratic platform, some of the people who listen to John Piper and other evangelicals who said, well, you don't need to vote. We can't vote for Trump. And, you know, we're just going to, you know, we, we can't vote for either. They're going to be in tears and they're going to be weeping and there's going to be a lot of angry, upset people because they drew off somewhere between 5 and 10% of evangelicals from voting. And that was enough to have put our president, even with all the 
different tricks and you know deceptions that were done in this election that would have put him in office and so we're going to be dealing with a lot of lot of issues and if the equality act is affirmed either by executive order or if it's uh, passed by law through the democrats which again if they can get control of the senate it will be and your church is having a vacation bible school and some man comes in and he says he's a girl and he wants to use the bathroom for females and you say no well there's going to be fines i mean the ramifications are absolutely huge so listen you don't want to enable someone by agreeing with their pronouns it may be your son or daughter and it's an absolute heartbreak to you and they want you to identify them with some pronoun that you know is not true when you do that, you are enabling them. You're not pushing them towards the Lord in kindness. You are pushing them further towards the pit of hell by you're not holding up God's law. God's law is the tutor to lead people to faith in Christ. So, Gabby, uh, you're trying to think, well, I can't serve maybe in the government school system at this point. But look, the way Australia is going and the way our country is going, these issues may be reflected before too long, even in Catholic schools or Christian schools. And so you don't have an opportunity to serve in a evangelical Bible, Bible believing school. You could serve in a Catholic school, you know, as long as they don't ask you to compromise your convictions, as long as they don't ask you to say, lead the class in a prayer to the Virgin Mary, as they would describe her because they believe in perpetual virginity. They believe as Pope Paul VI says that She's not, there's one mediator between God and man. And so he got creative and said, well, there's one mediator. We can't deny that. But there's also a mediatrix. And uh, so that she's an intercessor for us. And, you know, you can't compromise your convictions, but it might be an opportunity for witness. And people will remember that woman, Gabby. And man, she was just different from our other teachers. And her relationship to the Lord seems so real. And you might have opportunities outside of class to witness for Christ. So as long as you don't have to compromise your own personal convictions, then it might be a real opportunity because God loves people. He loves these Catholics, folk. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm from a Catholic background, and he loved me and brought me to himself. So there might be an opportunity for you there. Anyway, it's a great question, Gabby. Appreciate you, and uh, we pray for the church in Australia. We know the challenges there are great. Let's go to the next question. All righty, 435 If you have a question on today's Bible line, Anthony is on the road to Columbia, and he's calling with a question. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Y'all can hear me because y'all breaking up a little bit. You can hear me clear? Loud and clear, Anthony. Good to hear your voice today. What okay. can we do to be of help? Okay. Morning, Pastor. I have a, I've been reading the book of James for the last week every morning and going over my study notes from your preaching and, and trying to make sure I get a good understanding. I think I'm going to like this book just like Elijah. But my question is, and I might have a few questions, but I probably just one main question. When you talk about trials, and I, I imagine that it's possible we can have more trials at one time, and do you consider... Uh, I mean, does sin bring on trials, or is that something else? And like Samson or like David, was it trials for them, or just because of sin? Or like Joseph, when his brother sold him, is that, was that a trial, or was that just training for him? Uh, 
that's the question I ask. I just want to make sure training and trials or any way associated or different, if you can hear me. No, that's a great question. Let me see if I can respond. And when we come to our next message in James, we will delve into this subject even deeper. And so your question is going to be answered more fully because the hinge verse in chapter 1 of James 1 is verse 12. And 1 through 11, he deals with trials. And then 13 uh, through um, uh, 15, he deals with temptation. And interestingly, the same word in Greek for trial is used for temptation. And so when the King James uh, rendered this in the uh, 17th century, they only had one word as the English language progressed. We used two different words to uh, distinguish the difference between a solicitation to evil or just some hardship in life. So trials can come in many, many different forms. You know, they're, they're just the hardships of life. Sometimes, as I mentioned, and you're raising this, is we bring trouble on ourselves. Uh, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that shall he reap. And so, you know, sometimes people are out of fellowship with God. And um, I remember counseling someone years ago, and they got involved with someone in a flirtatious relationship. That's as far as it went. But they were cheating in their heart on their wife. And because of that, they're out of fellowship with God. In the course of that, they made some very unwise financial decisions and had to live with that for some period of time. That was a trial, so to speak, that they created because they had rejected, you know, God's role and plan and purpose that he had in their life. But trials come for many different reasons. uh, And there is technically a distinction between a trial and a tribulation, which is something further that I've discussed in other sermons, the word for a tribulation is thalipsis, and it's typically in reference to persecution. In the world, you will have thalipsis, tribulation. Why? Because the servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted the master Christ, they're going to persecute us. So all tribulations are trials, not all trials are tribulations. With Joseph, you know, he experienced some real trial. And um, because of the sinful decisions of other people. And so they were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery. But as he uh, responded so well, you know, most people would have been bitter and angry at God and at their brothers. And he forgave them and he reminded them, as Genesis 50 records, that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. So our perspective in trials are really important. In trials, as I mentioned, is not always a form of like corrective discipline. Some discipline is instructive. So we talk about, well, someone's under the discipline of the Lord. Well, what do you mean by that? Most of the time, Christians just think in a corrective way. Well, you know, we've done something wrong, so God's taking us to the woodshed. That's only half the equation. There's also instructive discipline, just like I instructed my children as they were growing up, teaching them, disciplining them how to work hard, how to pray, how to study the scriptures, how to relate to people. That's instructive discipline, and there can be corrective discipline as well. So um, a trial can turn into a temptation, and I haven't really answered that, so I'm not going to answer it today because I've got a whole sermon on that. We'll be coming to it in just a few weeks. But great question, Anthony. Appreciate it. Stick with me in James, and I'm thrilled to hear you say you're reading the book of James. It's only 108 verses, so we're encouraging 
all those who are studying James with us, whether on the Internet, uh, whether locally, that once a week you read through the book of James. You can do it in about 15 minutes. The app that I listen to does it in about 12 so um, you got plenty of opportunity to uh, listen to James. And hopefully if you'll do that once a week and study with us, and we'll be in it for several months, uh, you'll be able to think your way all the way through this great little letter. We'll give him a little preview, though, because the question was, does sin bring on trials? And I think if he were to scope around chapter 5 and yes. verse 18, he might get yeah, a little that's more right. insight. That's right. That will be helpful. All yep. right. Very, Very good. good. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Raymond from Harrison, Tennessee, wants to know, um, he says, I've been watching you on YouTube and enjoy your systematic expository teaching of Scripture and uh, am thankful for your insight. Have you by chance written any books? And if so, can you send me a list and information on how I can purchase them? Well, I suppose in one sense I've written a lot of books, but I've just never published them. My son-in-law was... uh, you know, kind of pushed me yesterday because he knows I'm writing a commentary on Isaiah 53, and I've been studying Isaiah in my quiet times, and the 53rd chapter is over 300 pages long already, so it's growing. He said, he said, Carl, you should publish that, and I'm not opposed to publishing, but I don't like a lot of the Christian presses. They, there's just gross compromise. They're in it for the almighty dollar, Lifeway, the Southern Baptist Press that was once really conservative and God-honoring, classic example. And there are other examples where, you know, they've got a convoluted message where uh, they're publishing certain women who are in violation of biblical truth. Why? Because it makes money and they're in it for the almighty buck. So that really bothers me. But I have self-published a couple of small booklets One is called, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? And it's an important question. You know, does God send someone to hell for having never, you know, believed in a Savior whose name he's never heard of? And if he does, doesn't that seem unfair and unjust? And that's an important question, not only that unbelievers will ask, but a Christian should ask, because missions are predicated on this. I mean, if God just, you know, let someone go to he- to heaven in, in ignorance, then why bother to evangelize them? So this is a critical question that both believers and unbelievers uh, will ask. And that's available on Amazon. If you just go to Amazon and type in, are the unevangelized really lost? Carl Berge, it will come up. I don't make any money on this. So I price it out in a way that, you know, you could charge 12 bucks or $18, and I think it's like $6, and we do it at cost. The other one that's also available on Amazon is How to Prove the Bible is True. And I um, go through five crucial evidences to show that God didn't inspire the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Upanishads or the Vedas or some encyclical letter. The only book God wrote and inspired was the 66 books of the Bible. And so we walk through the personal claims of the Bible, that it claims to be the Word of God. It's proven accuracy, whether it's in confirmed by archaeology or outside sources, it, the supernatural construction of it, the, the prophecy in it, its prophetic nature, and then how God preserved it. Because sometimes people will say, well, okay, I recognize God inspired it, but it's been written and translated so many times it's not accurate anymore. We go through things like that. There's no other book like the Bible. So this is part of my series that I do, the 10 Most Commonly Asked Questions. 
that uh, we do in our discovery class. It's part of our new Christians curriculum. And I hope to actually publish all 10 of those questions and put them together in one little compendium by the time we are finished. But those are two that are available right now. But I would say to um, this brother, he's listening on YouTube. Um, And a lot of the sermons are on YouTube, but there's thousands of sermons that are not on YouTube. So how would he download the app, Rick, and and get some of these messages? So if he's got an iPhone or iPad, he can go to the app store and uh, just look up for uh, search the scriptures and then just put uh, Brogy right after that, and it'll uh, bring up our particular one. Uh, Same for the Android store, the the, uh, Android devices. You can go ahead and go to the Google store and uh, put in that same search term and download the app, and there you'll have you know, a plethora of options for so you can use list. yeah, you can use your phone or if you've got your computer, search the scriptures dot org and you say, Well, I want to study Romans. Well, you can click on Romans and there's, you know, I forgot sixty some sermons in Romans. I want to study Revelation. Well, there's, you know, seventy sermons on the Revelation or I want to study Genesis and you know, I've done a lot of books of the Bible. Um and they're taught really uh, like you are almost reading a commentary, um, but hopefully with uh, some passion and not the dullness of a commentary that can sometimes put you to sleep. Anyway, great question, brother. Let's go to the next one. Vanessa from Guyton, Georgia writes, I've heard you speak about the Catholic religion, understanding that you have a personal experience as well. Please direct me on obtaining information to present to our son and his wife, who suddenly in their early 30s have chosen to become Catholic. After being raised in a Christian home and saved since the age of seven, my husband and I know very little of the Catholic beliefs and definitely not educated enough to present to him evidence to prove that the religion is in essence a cult. Our grandchildren are eight and four. We fear that they'll miss out on hearing the true gospel and having sufficient concrete evidence that this religion is the wrong choice and that there is anything at all incorrect about it. They chose Roman Catholic religion to become united with. Please guide us to the appropriate information. Well, you know, interestingly, Roman Catholics are becoming more aggressive in this country. I've seen, you know, signs up outside of Roman Catholic churches, not just in our state, but in places I've traveled, you know, interested in joining, you know, come to this meeting or whatever. And so they're, quote unquote, being evangelistic, not in the sense that we would define evangelism in terms of preaching the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Hey, listen, you know, it's sad. I mean, this son has been raised, you're saying, in an evangelical church. He knows better, um, but maybe he doesn't know better because obviously if he did, he wouldn't really be embracing Catholicism. And so sometimes people have enough of the gospel to be saved, enough of the good news and the plan of salvation to be converted, and let's assume the best here in your son, that he has met the Lord. And if he has, I should say, then he has potentially the ability to hear truth. Because you see, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus said, unless you're born again, also you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't perceive it. You can't understand it. To use Paul's words, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So you have to be born from above to really see and embrace spiritual truth. And so when someone is presented with truth and they've met Christ, 
there's a confirmation by the Spirit of God. Who's our ultimate teacher? John, in teaching, says you have no need for a teacher. What do you mean? You're teaching us that you have no need for a teacher? His point is you have an ultimate teacher, the anointing. And he mentions this in 1 John 2, God, the Holy Spirit, who helps you to see and embrace truth. So what happens more and more in churches today because of the new paradigm that we've used for the last three decades is sometimes the gospel's preached, but there's not much beyond that, and you don't want to get too controversial, and you don't want to bore people with the, with the doctrine of the Bible. There's nothing boring about doctrine. Doctrine is reflective of who God is, and if you've met the Lord, you'll be excited to learn biblical doctrine because it's a reflection of his heart for you and his heart for people. So today people are untaught, and when they're untaught, that makes them open to error. So your son in embracing a Catholic church, look, you, there's Catholics who listen to me in other states and other places of the world and who, who come to Christ. And God, God, you know, cares about the 700 uh, million Catholics in the world today. He cares about them. And there are many who have met Christ as Savior. And let me just say parenthetically, you can believe a lot of wrong things and still go to heaven. You could believe that the Pope is God's man. You could believe that Mary is perpetual virgin, that she never had normal marital relationships after she gave birth to Jesus. Uh, You could believe that she was sinless. Uh, You could believe that uh, falsely believe that Christ is literally, physically, actually present in the Lord's Supper, that those elements are turned into the body and blood of Christ, transubstantiation. You can believe a lot of wrong things and go to heaven. And by the way, when I was converted and I came out of Roman Catholicism, I had a lot of wrong beliefs on the day I was saved. But what saved me? I heard for the first time the plan of salvation, that you're saved by grace through faith and not by works that works are simply the fruit, the evidence, the proof, the byproduct of salvation, but not the means to it. And so um, what's happening today is, you know, people are joining sometimes Catholic churches, and sometimes there's a rejection of what's going on in so-called evangelicalism. They're tired and weary of going into these services that are like rock and roll concerts where the windows were all blackened out and there's smoke coming up off the stage and it's a big show. And, you know, and they know that that just doesn't seem conducive to genuine worship. And then they go into a Catholic church where there's a certain solemnity and reverence and they, they, they like the atmosphere and they bite more in the atmosphere than they do on a knowledge of their doctrine. But let's be clear in plain here. The Roman Catholic Church denies justification by grace alone through faith alone. And you cannot be wrong on how God saves a person. Listen, Paul wrote the book of Galatians where they didn't add 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 works. They added one work to the finished work of Christ. They said what Jesus did, they didn't deny any more than Catholics deny that Jesus literally actually died, was buried in a tomb, and on the third day was raised from the dead. But these false Judaizers who'd come into the church were saying, well, that's just not sufficient. In addition, you must do this. And people make their additions today. Sometimes it's baptism or church membership or a hundred things. And Paul said, if you make any additions, if you embrace a Christ plus way of salvation, that's a different gospel. It's what he would refer to in Corinthians as another Jesus 
and anyone who teaches another gospel is anathema, he is to be condemned. Why? Because he's leading people into an eternity in hell. And so when Martin Luther, of course, he's living in the context of gross abuses, he goes to Rome. It's his dream to go to Rome, and he goes there expecting to see these great godly people as he leaves Germany. And what he finds is gross abuses, immorality amongst the, you know, the priesthood and the cardinals and the bishops and uh, this opulent lifestyle where the people are suffering. And he begins to scratch his head and, you know, he jumps through all the hoops and does all the things that you're supposed to do when you go to Rome. And he leaves empty and disillusioned. And it really forces him, as he's a professor there in the University at Wittenberg, to study the scriptures more carefully. And in the process, he realized that there's a major, major tenet in which the Roman Catholic Church is in error, and it's how a man is justified. And, of course, what precipitated this was the abuses that were going on through a fundraising project that Pope Pius XII initiated uh, to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral. St. Peter's Cathedral, if you've ever been in there, if you're ever in Rome, you've got to go. It's absolutely breathtaking. It is the largest physical structure in the world in terms of a church. And if you go there on the floor, they have the great cathedrals of the world, you know, mocked off. You might have been into the cathedral there in D.C. and say, wow, this is really big. And, you know, that's like um, way down towards the front in comparison. And then you go, the last one, I think, is Westminster Cathedral. And then you look, and there's another 20 yards to the back wall. So we're talking about this gigantic building. And that dome caved in, and so the Pope needed to raise money, so he hired a guy by the name of Tetzel, and of course, uh, the, the rhyme in English, similar to German, every time a coin drops into my chest, another soul goes into heavenly rest, and he sold these indulgences where you could be guaranteed for a sum of money that you could bypass purgatory and go directly into heaven, and Luther thinks this is not right, and he begins to study, and of course, he uh, puts on the door there on Wittenberg on October the 31st, um, the 95 theses or assertions where he felt like the, the church in his day had veered from biblical truth, and it sparked the Protestant Reformation. It had already been going on. Luther is not the first, you know, born-again Christian in centuries. Listen, God has always had his people. He's already always had his church. But what was unusual is you had people leaving the established uh, Roman Catholic Church that was largely in control uh, to go and participate in, um, you know, in a new movement of God. Anyway, the Roman Catholic response is what we call the Council of Trent. That met from 1548 to 1564. And uh, they actually asserted over a hundred anathemas. And one anathema you can read, I think it's Canon 6, don't quote me on that, but you can pull it up, the Council of Trent, and just type in justification. But to paraphrase it, they said, anyone who teaches that justification is by grace alone, received through faith alone, and that good works do not in some way help merit that justification, let him be anathema. That's the exact opposite of what God said in the book of Galatians, the exact opposite. And by the way, the Council of Trent was reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, and then when the College of Cardinals met in Rome in 2010, it was reaffirmed for uh, a fourth time. Listen, that's heretical. 
Now, what I would say to your son is there's a couple of books that have been written. One is by Lorraine Bettner. Uh, He wrote a book called Roman Catholicism. It's still a classic work. I think it was first published in 1961, and it's been reprinted over and over and over again. If you go to Amazon, you can probably buy a used copy for 3 or $4 plus shipping. Um, But what he does, and he does so well, is he goes through, and nothing's changed. Nothing has changed since he's first published it in 1961 in terms of what Catholics believe, is he quotes from their own documents, and then he walks you through biblically the difference between what they say and what the Bible says. And if you're a thinking person and you're open to truth, then you can think your way through this with God's help, and you can see the difference. Now, beyond that, you know, there are things that sometimes people, especially Protestant evangelicals, is they say, well, you know, Catholics teach this, and they create these straw men. And then Roman Catholics say, well, we know we don't teach that. And so instead of driving them towards Christ, they drive them farther away from the truth, which is sad. So you want an accurate book. So that would be a great one. And then one of my professors in seminary, his name was Dr. Norman Geisler. He wrote a book called Roman Catholics and Evangelical. Dr. Norman Geisler, he died a year or so ago and is now in heaven. And and so uh, he talked about areas of doctrinal agreement, differences. And But if if I were to buy one of those, I would buy the one by Lorraine Bettner. And uh, now if your son-in-law is not regenerate, he's not going to have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. And um, he may not be interested. But you pray for him, and God could could you do a great work in his life to change us? Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Dr. Brogy, my question comes from the book of James, where you're presently teaching. Chapter 1, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. My question is, what are the lights that he's talking about, Uh, the Father of lights? And I've got a little notation on the side, probably from a previous sermon, sun, moon, stars, shadows. Could you explain exactly what he's talking about? What is shifting and what is the variation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let me just say, first of all, that... For those who are just tuned in to WAGP or you're listening through the Internet, I am preaching through the book of James. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on your question because I'm going to preach an hour-long sermon on this. And it's an armchair question, and it's a fair question. Um, So I am working through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the book of James. And we just started it, and uh, we've only done two messages, and I think I'm planning five messages in chapter 1. Uh, The first message was one verse, and there'll be some one-verse sermons as we work through the book of James. But for the most part, James, uh, you know, has these small little pericopes as he uh, develops over, you know, 13, uh, 30 different issues through the book. And there is rhyme and reason to it, and it fits together. And, And so I am encouraging those who are studying with us to consider uh, going ahead and reading the book once a week. And so read it once a week, and I think that would be really, really helpful to you in the days ahead as we um, work through this short little book, and and it's important. 
So he's called the father of lights, and the specific lights, you know, certainly are the celestial bodies. You know, he, he made the stars and the sun and the, the moon, and, and um, with God, there's no darkness. And so, again, we'll, lock, we'll walk through this and how light is used metaphorically and literally in Scripture and how James uses it in his little book. So I'm just going to save it because I'm going to spend an hour on it, and the questions have just stacked up. And so, so I'm, I'm going to answer this in a couple of weeks. Just be patient with me, and we'll get to it. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And David from Mount, Ple- uh, Mount Pleasant, Texas, writes, Where would I find the phrase, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear my prayers? Well, David, you give me a good excuse to promote Uh, a series I've been doing on Wednesday night called Basic Discipleship. And uh, there are uh, 21 handouts to the course. It's what we have taught for 30 years. Uh, I wrote the course 40 years ago, um, but I am updating it each time I get a chance to teach it myself. I taught it for years in the church, and then we went to two and three services, and I couldn't do it anymore when we had an early service and then an in-between Sunday school hour and then a second service to follow, I was able to teach it in that context or when we had one service in the early years. I taught during the Sunday school hour, but it's a class that never ends because by God's grace, almost every week someone is coming to Christ. And so since we've not had that offered via COVID, the smaller groups, uh, I've been teaching it on Wednesday nights. And I'm sure I won't get to the end of it uh, before uh, COVID is over. And we're hoping and praying it will be over soon. But I just finished the fourth of the 21st handouts on the Christian in prayer. And so I would recommend that you go to communitybiblechurch.org. It's a 32-page handout. So I think you'll find it useful. But it is from Psalm 6618. And by the way, this is a verse that people dump on the unsaved all the time to say, well, God doesn't hear the prayer of a non-Christian. And we address that issue. No, God sometimes does hear the prayer of a non-Christian. And we looked at a biblical example, and I walked through it very carefully. But in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness or iniquity in my heart, depending on your translation, the Lord will not hear. He doesn't say if I sin, God will not hear. For the Bible teaches, as we will study in James chapter 3, that we all stumble in many ways. And 1 John 1 teaches that same principle. But the thought behind the Hebrew word is if I cherish, if I harbor, if I hold on to, then God will not hear. And by the way, the prophet Isaiah drives home the same truth. And again, we take this verse in Isaiah 59, we dump it on unbelievers, and there is application to unbelievers, but in the original context, it's written to Israel. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Same principle as Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: If I regard or hold on to or cling or cherish iniquity or wickedness, God doesn't hear. Now, the problem was not God. His strength is never, you know, lessened or diminished. Um, God's hand is not so short that it cannot save, Isaiah affirms. 
Um, neither was the problem that God lacks, you know, a knowledge of our need. He knows everything about us. He knows the hairs on your head. They're all numbered. A sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from his notice. So it's not that he doesn't know or that he's concerned. His ear is so dull, though, that it cannot hear. What does it mean he cannot hear? He's omniscient. Uh, does he Does he have a, a case of divine deafness? No more than when the Scripture says, your sins I will remember no more. Does that mean God has a case of divine amnesia? No, he doesn't hold them against you. And so when the Bible says that God cannot hear, he's speaking about God is not going to respond to your prayer when there's known, unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life. Listen, there's nothing that you can do to sever your eternal relationship with God. And by the way, that's handout one in the basic discipleship course. And I think we spent five Wednesday nights on that handout, and so dealing with the whole subject of not only eternal security, but assurance of salvation. You can do nothing to sever your eternal security. However, sin does separate us from fellowship with God and the blessings that come, and one of those blessings is answered prayer. So many times God just chooses to say, no, I'm not going to listen. It's like um, your son or your daughter comes to you with a request, and you really want to honor that request. But in your heart, you think, no, I can't do it. They've got to deal with this issue in their life first, and then I can respond to their request. Well, God God is no different, and we're a reflection of him in many ways. If we, even being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does God? And God wants to respond to our prayer, and we talk about six reasons why God doesn't answer prayer. And one of those reasons is that if you don't pray with a clean heart, you cannot expect as a believer that God will respond to your prayer. So Psalm 66, 18, uh, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Michael from Bluffton, South Carolina, would like to know, do you have to speak in tongues to be considered to be saved in the eyes of Christ? Or even better, is this the evidence of receiving the Holy Ghost? So what if you've not spoken in tongues? This has been very confusing to me in my walk with Christ. Well, it's it's a very, very good question, and um, it's somewhat of an armchair question, but let me just read a couple of passages. Paul, there are four central passages in the Bible that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts. This, the topic is covered throughout the New Testament, but there are four what we would call central main passages that deal with the subject. They're easy to remember, two fours and two twelves. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, uh, Romans 12, and then uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through chapters 14. And so Paul is dealing with an immature church whose expression of spiritual gifts was not sound. And so he says, for the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any a less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm an eye, I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any the less a part of the body? Of course not. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But then he reminds us, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And so God has orchestrated the church with different gifts. There are 20 gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And his point is, is that we need each other. In fact, he'll go on to say that 
It is much true that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another." So the Corinthians weren't recognizing this simple truth, and they promoted and put forth some spiritual gifts over others, especially the more foundational gifts that seem to have a more dramatic expression. And so he asks the question at the end of this chapter, which will specifically answer your question, short answer, are all are not apostles, are they? It's a rhetorical question. And the way it's structured in Greek, it demands an answer, no, not all are apostles. All are not prophets, are they? No, they are not. All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? No, they don't. So Paul, again, is saying tongues is just one of many gifts. And so anyone who would teach, it's a sign that you have the Holy Spirit or it's necessary to salvation, or you've had this deeper work of the Holy Spirit, are very confused believers. And it's rather new in the scope of church history for this position to be taken. Because interestingly, when the canon of Scripture was completed, history records, church history records, that some of the sign gifts just stopped. And then we have some resurgence, as people would call it, around 1900 in that time frame, the Azusa Street Revival. And, uh, but what happened there and what's happening today is no different than what's happening in, in Hinduism in India, where people speak in tongues and they sound identical to what these so-called Pentecostal brethren are doing and falling on the floor and laughing uncontrollable. So... I have a 21-page handout called The Purpose of Sign Gifts in the Bible. It's in my course, Michael B., on spiritual gifts. And so I would recommend that you get that handout. You can request it at Search the Scriptures, 877-STS-7478, and ask them for the handout on sign gifts, and they'll be happy to send it to you electronically so that you can read through it. And I walk through all these issues contextually and how people say, well, this is not really a a spiritual gift. This is a prayer language and all these different quirks and nuances that people have come up with to try to defend their experience. Actually, listening to the Search the Scriptures daily program this morning, you're in Revelation chapter 19 right now dealing with uh, what's getting ready to be the Christ's second coming. And you hit on... Uh, that tongues issue again. And I didn't realize until I heard you mention it that the, that tongues was actually mimicking um, something from the second century BC. I didn't realize it was oh, that yeah. early. Yeah. You know, and again, you, you can just think it through logically. Um, I have people, yeah, in Greek uh, religions and even certain Roman religions and gods that they worshiped and kind of like Hinduism where, you know, they have some 300 million gods. I don't know how they come up with that number, but when you go to India and I've only been there twice, but there's a God on every corner, you can see how they could come up with that dramatic number. But what they do is no different, but it's interesting, Rick, because sometimes I'll meet, you know, Pentecostals who come to our church 
and they've spoken in tongues and they've done this and I've, they've done that. And then you ask them just the diagnostic questions. How sure are you that you go to heaven and on what basis should God let you into heaven? Someone saying 100% doesn't mean it's true. They can be 100% wrong. But why should God let them into heaven? And when they don't understand justification by grace alone through faith alone, they're not Christians. That's not a judgment I'm making. That's a judgment God has made. Yet they've spoken in tongues. They've had all these experiences. Well, listen, if spiritual gifts are only given to people who have believed on Christ, if the Holy Spirit is only given to those who've received Jesus as Lord, and you don't even know how to receive Jesus as Lord, how to call upon him in faith because you've not heard the plan of salvation, then what are they experiencing? Well, whatever it is, it's certainly not from the Lord because spiritual gifts are only given to born-again people. So it just logically, you begin to see the fallacies, not to mention, of course, there are, you know, cults in our day, like the Way International, and, you know, you can pay $100 to take a course, and they'll teach you how to speak in tongues so you can know you're saved, and just all kinds of nonsense. Mm. Well, speaking of 1 Corinthians, uh, Suzanne Kay from Hardyville uh, is referencing 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty four, and she wants to know, is it okay for a woman to say, Amen in church. And is it okay to raise our hands and worship to the Lord during hymns? It's a good question. So he says, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. I'm reading verse 35 in addition. Uh, You asked on verse 34. For it, is not impro- for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, is Paul convoluted here? Is Paul confused? He just gave instructions, not just in this book, but in other epistles about a woman speaking in church. So again, context is everything. Every text has a context. And if you take it out of context, then you've created a pretext, and potentially you can distort the meaning of a verse of Scripture. So Paul is already affirmed in 1 Corinthians 11, the first 16 verses um, of a woman's right to pray in church and to prophesy in church under, you know, proper authority. And so when you see, well, and not to mention, you know, in Ephesians and Colossians, he speaks about a woman singing in church. Those are commands. You know, if you're not singing in church, when the church is worshiping, unless you've got, you know, no vocal cords or, you know, whatever, then we're not obeying what God says. So he he tells the women, though, yet let them keep silent in the churches. And so in what sense? It's a qualified silence. Remember, of course, he also appeals to the law, just as the law also says. Again, verse 34, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to be subject to are to but are to subject themselves just as the law says. He's referring to Genesis 3.16, that they are to be subject to their husbands. And interestingly, in the Corinthian seating style, you would have typically men and women who would sit on separate sides of the audience, and there are some churches today that still do this. When you go to uh, any Orthodox gathering, the men and the women are separated. Uh, a friend of mine is an Orthodox rabbi in Jerusalem, and one of his 18 children got married. And it was interesting to watch the video because, again, you had the men separated from the women. 
as he live streamed it and I and I watched it and participated with him in that fashion. And so sometimes, you know, a woman, because questions were permit, permissible in a fellowship, they could ask a question away that they were teaching or exercising authority over man that would be in violation of First Timothy or a woman might prophesy in church or a man might prophesy in church and instead of um, letting the men in the church who are to teach and are given that place uh, evaluate the prophecy, some women were stepping in and giving their opinion. And so Paul says they need to be silent. So it's a qualified silent because a woman can pray in church. She can prophesy in church. And so God gave direct revelation. When I say prophesy, I'm not meaning preach, but I'm using the term where God uh, gave direct revelation. Remember, you know, when the Bible was being constructed, he still cared about his church, but they couldn't reference what Paul said in Ephesians or what, you know, the revelation had said that wasn't even written. And so God gave revelation and direction directly to people who are direct conduits of revelation. And there again, it had to be, you know, confirmed on the basis of two or three witnesses and the spirit of a prophet was subject to other prophets and there was evaluation that needed to be done. Why? Because we're to test the spirits to see whether they be of God because there are all kinds of counterfeits that could go on. And so some of the women in the church were overstepping their role in going into a role where they were evaluating the prophecy, thus really teaching and doing what God had called the men in the fellowship to do. So, again, it's a qualified silence. It needs to be put in the immediate context of 1 Corinthians, you know, 11 to 14, and in the broader context of the New Testament. Because while men and women are equal, and God affirms that, we don't have the same role. And when we gender blend, we bring destruction on the church and not health to the church. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. Well, actually, we've only got about a minute left, so uh, uh, anything you, that you would like yeah, to let me uh, just promote? Give a, let me give a plug for two things. Uh, number one, our Christmas Eve service will be on Christmas Eve, uh, the 24th at 5.30 in the evening. We'll be using both of our auditoriums, and if need be, four classrooms. It's usually a packed-out service, but with COVID, things are different. We have social distancing and rows sectioned off and everything else, but we have uh, two auditoriums that, uh, one that was constructed for 1,800 seats, another for another 800 seats and 60-seat classrooms. So we've got plenty of room is what I'm trying to say for anyone who wants to come to our candlelight service at 5.30 on Christmas Eve. This Sunday, I'll be preaching a Christmas sermon, and then on Christmas Sunday, the 27th as well. And again, if you don't have a place to go, you can join us, or you can live stream at our website, on Apple, on Roku, at Sermon Audio, on Facebook, at YouTube, all kinds of opportunities. Hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.